Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast that explores solutions for sustainability and equity in water. I'm Travis Loop, co-host for this episode. And I'm co-host Maya Richard Craven. This episode is part of the Color of Water series, which features interviews with diverse experts from communities across the country. This series is a collaboration between Waterloop and the Water Hub. This is episode number 211, Resilience to Change the Coast. Growing up with a strong fear of water doesn't typically lead someone to a career in coastal issues. But after grappling with this fear during childhood in India, Vidya Balasabramanyam found the courage to pursue a career in coastal resilience and environmental advocacy in the U.S. In this episode, Vidya shares her personal journey and professional perspective. She discusses various options for building resilient shorelines in places like Illinois and New Hampshire. Vidya also delves into the impacts on communities of color and disadvantaged populations in coastal areas, along with strategies for bolstering their resilience. Vidya currently serves the Coastal States Organization, and although she's not representing it in this interview, she provides insights into the organization's role in advancing resilience and offering solutions for vulnerable communities on the coast. You're in the water loop. Vidya, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal background. So what is your origin story that set you on this professional journey? Uh, sure. So I think a lot of people would would assume that being working in the coastal space naturally originates from having a love of water. But for me, I actually started off as a kid and you know, throughout my youth, even as an adult, having this deep abiding fear of water. Growing up, my parents would always say, you know, don't go near the water, stay away from it. Uh, you know, even if I was at the beach with my family, they would not really let me go closer to where, where the waves were coming from. And yeah, I spent so much of my life being afraid of it, being traumatized by it. I tried to take swim lessons and I remember how the instructor would coach me through it, but then my body would just freeze in the water because like my mind was never convinced that the water is a safe place. And then I guess over the years, the more I, I, I started having opportunities to explore the outdoors, the more I saw people just like really enjoying themselves playing in the water. And I was like, wow, you know, the water is can be such a healing force. And I don't think I'm at the point where it's necessarily a healing force for me, but I do believe that it can be a healing force for people and especially the ocean, given how expansive and vast it is all the richness that it holds and so that's kind of how i merged into the coastal space to make other people feel safe uh, being by the ocean wow and you you grew up when you were younger in india is that right yeah there were i think when we were talking before you talked about there also being like floods um you know that were a problem and that you know caused damage and that that was part of that kind of concern that your parents had 
Yeah, sort of. So yeah, I grew up in India and I remember we were going on vacation in 2006-2008, that time frame. And uh, we had to cut our vacation plans short because there was a major tsunami. Where I grew up, it was very much of a landlocked city. So, you know, like just hearing the news about a tsunami hitting the coastline was terrifying for everyone because uh, like we had no experience in the water. And I think that exacerbated my fears even more and made me feel even more disconnected uh, from from the water. But, but now it's amazing because you work on coastal issues, right? Um, and so you've kind of come come to that place. How did you how did you get interested then in working on on coastal issues and coastal water issues and resilience? Um, what how did that happen? And you know what did you study to kind of become a professional in this area? Yeah, I think, so I was always interested in environmental issues and I knew that I wanted to work in and in the environmental field, have a green job and such. And I guess over the years, it evolved and materialized. However, there was this one book that I read when I was in grad school. I was pursuing a degree, a per- pursuing a master's degree in natural resources. And around that time, I read this book called The Hungry Tide. It was written by an author named Amitabh Ghosh. And he wrote about, the story is about, uh, it's set in the Sundarbans region in um, in India, kind of near like India, Bangladesh, that area. And it talks about mangrove forests and the um, how how humans have a relationship with the land and how the relationship between the land and the sea and humans it's such a interesting trifecta there's so many there's such a large complex web of problems so i think that book really moved me and around the same time i was finishing up grad school and i did an internship in the new england coastline to work on coastal vulnerability assessments it was just the only internship that i got so i took it but i think like when i when i did that project i met a lot of other people working in the coastal space and realized that it's such a cool way to operationalize all of these different issues about water and uh, human relationships with water and how that connects to land. I just felt like that was um, such a profound space with so much meaning and so much complexity. And I felt like I could contribute to that. I love it. I love it. I'll have to check that book out. That sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah. So you, you mentioned working on coastal issues in New England, I think in New Hampshire, uh, and then also working on coastal issues in the Great Lakes, right? Lake Michigan, which people don't always equate the Great Lakes with coastal issues, but those, those are coasts. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about the, that work um, and especially like how those communities can build resilience uh really curious about that obviously coastal resilience is such a broad term it can mean so many things in many instances resilience is so much of a buzzword now that and it means so many things that it also means nothing at all so it is important to respect the place-based nuances of what it means to be resilient. And of course, some communities are tired of being resilient because like 
they didn't ask to be exposed to coastal hazards. So it's it's a mix. Things are different in different places. In the Great Lakes, for instance, there's there has been a lot of unpredictability with the lake levels because changing climatic conditions make sometimes the lake levels are a lot higher, sometimes they're a lot lower, and both of those impacts can be felt in very tangible ways. So if the lake levels are really low in the Great Lakes, then that causes water quality issues, sediment issues, it you know messes up the navigation channels, which can then mess up the local economy. And then of course, if the lake levels are super high, then there's going to be a lot of flooding, there's going to be a lot of storm I used to work along Lake Michigan, and I used to. I remember that there was this around 2019. The beach was so narrow that it barely even existed. There were a lot of dog beaches that were completely covered, especially the one that I used to go to most often. So yeah, it kind of varies, but regardless of the place, usually it does have uh, impacts on people, their livelihoods the places that they live, work and play in. And so And and one of the things I think you talked about for resilience is living shorelines. Uh mm-hmm. that those have been mentioned on this podcast before, but could you explain what those are um and how they work, especially in, in those kind of colder climates? Right. So living shorelines are seen as nature based solutions to keep the shoreline protected from uh, coastal hazards like waves, storm surge, and in cold climates, it's ice. So in New England, it usually looks like, you know, like marsh, replanting marshes and then putting little sills on marshes to create habitat for fishes. In the Great Lakes, living shorelines can be a little bit more difficult because of not just the cold climate, but the extremely high wave energies. There aren't as many estuaries like there are in New England. So living shorelines are more things like uh, offshore reef structures, like little um, stones placed off the shoreline to create habitat for fishes, but at the same time, which slows down the wave energy. In the in the Great Lakes, you absolutely have to get a lot more creative when designing living shorelines. And, you know, as of a couple of years ago, the fact that, you know, using these nature-based solutions instead of the traditional seawalls and rock revetments was considered new and that was innovative. But now, uh, some of the ideas and concepts have really evolved and people are starting to acknowledge that living shorelines isn't just restoring the ecology of the lands, but it's also about restoring human relationships with that land. So a nature-based solution isn't necessarily complete if it continues to isolate people from the water. Nature-based solutions should also give people um, some kind of access to the water, some way to, you know, fish or just be by the water and explore its healing benefits because only if we as humans heal our relationships with the land can the ecology of the shoreline also heal itself. I'm so glad you brought that up because that leads into our next question actually. Um, You know, almost half of native tribes in this country don't have access to clean water and basic sanitation. And I'm curious, you know, what are the impacts of communities of color and disadvantaged communities in coastal areas, and how can they be made more resilient? Uh, I would say, reflecting on my experience working in coastal areas versus also working in inland areas, I would say it's actually not very different, right? Like the root causes of uh, 
of environmental injustices are still the same. So, you know, being part of extractive economies and being, um, you know, being subject to the legacies of colonialism, it's still the same root causes, although the specific impacts can look different, of course, in coastal areas, if you're living in a high, in a very, you know, exposed region, you're going to be more susceptible to high tides, uh, you're more susceptible to certain types of sewer outflows, if there are major storms or hurricanes. So yeah, geographically, the types of impacts may vary. But honestly, the root causes that impact communities of color, tribes, are still the are still connected to those same uh, same issues. You work um, at the Coastal States Organization. I'm curious, what is the organization and what's your role there? Yeah, so Coastal States Organization is uh, is sort of like we represent. Um, all of the nation's coastal states and territories, except for Alaska. There are, so each coastal state and territory has a coastal management program, which is sort of like a federal state partnership that enables the enables the flow down of resources from the federal government to local coastal communities to improve coastal resilience, improve coastal habitats. And so a lot of my work revolves around project management, helping the different coastal states work together. So for example, the Great Lakes states are currently working together uh, on a big uh, Great Lakes coastal resiliency study to identify all of the different impacts of climate change in the Great Lakes coastal watershed and then find some solutions. So currently the Great Lakes coastal programs are working with the US Army Corps of Engineers on this multi-year study. So it's just uh, being part of things like that, helping uh, different initiatives, figure out how they connect to each other, ensuring that there's no duplication, helping with coastal policy. It's like a very wide breadth of issues that I work on. And it's kind of nice because, you know, um, I don't have uh, it's kind of nice to witness what's going on in the Great Lakes and at the same time what's going on in the Gulf Coast and then facilitate information transfer across different regions. Because even though all these regions are very different, there's still uh, a lot of insight and wisdom uh, that could that people can learn from each other even if they live on opposite sides of the country. That Great Lakes study that you mentioned, so there, there, this is like a multi-year, pretty intensive study, it sounds like. Uh, and then the idea is they'll have the findings of that and try to put some solutions in effect working with the Army Corps? Or what's, is that generally right? Or? Yeah, that is generally right. And I think usually the solutions will probably look more like nature-based solutions, living shorelines, uh, like, you know, protecting critical infrastructure, like sewer, sewage treatment plants. There are a lot of like hospitals and critical facilities that are highly vulnerable. So figuring out how all of those can be protected. And of course, like community engagement is also a big part of it, Help, uh, letting people decide where their water quality issues are and how uh, all of those can be addressed in a more holistic way. Because right now, a lot of projects are happening and they're all sort of happening on their own, which is good, but sometimes realizing the interconnectivity of the different projects across the Great Lakes is really helpful because ultimately what happens in one part of the system does impact other parts of the system. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how the organization is helping to provide 
solutions for resilient, you know, for the resiliency of communities on the coast? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we do is we, we realize where's the sort of this big nonprofit sitting in DC. So we don't often work directly with communities because, you know, we don't want to be like an external organization coming in and helping people. So what we mostly focus on is working with our coastal programs that are much more rooted within the coastal communities and then empowering the state coastal programs with all of the tools and the resources that they need in order to work best with local communities. And that's something that is um is you know in the environmental field we're always taught okay you have to work with the community you have to be super engaged but just as important is knowing when to step back and knowing when your influence may not actually have the greatest impact and then instead finding who else is in influence might be more directly beneficial and then supporting them and empowering them to work with communities that's a really great approach, right? There's way too many examples in the past of the federal government and these big organizations coming in and trying to tell communities what works for them instead of listening to the communities who know their situation the best. That's, that's a wise approach to take. Uh, I wanted to kind of circle back to some of your personal background. Um, very curious about, you know, you being from India and coming and working in the environmental space in the U.S. Um, what has that experience been like? What observations do you have that might uh, that people that maybe grew up in the U.S. might not have about about the space? I've been thinking a lot about this, and again, I wanted to go back to that topic of interconnectivity. To me, I find it very obvious how the work that we do in the U.S., even if it's like super place-based, very localized. To me, it, it, it the connections, the impacts of what goes on in the U.S. are are very easily felt in other parts of the world, and I feel like in order for for projects in the U.S. to truly be impactful to protect the planet from the effects of climate change those projects should have this ethos of global solidarity and should build in global solidarity principles into their implementation. Because I truly believe that everyone, that the liberation of oppressed peoples here is so closely interconnected, interconnected with liberation of oppressed peoples around the world. So in the South Asian context, there uh, the, the there's a lot of caste apartheid, which is analogous to racial apartheid here in the US. And it's the way these systems of oppression, uh, systems of oppression connect to each other is, to me, it's very obvious. And I feel like in order for US practitioners to feel, to be truly liberated in their work, to truly liberate themselves and the communities that they work with, those principles of global solidarity, the, the, the awareness of other systems of oppression, other countries that are oppressed in other parts of the globe, and learning from those approaches, employing those principles is very critical. And right now, I'm not seeing that happening as much. 
And how else did you get involved with environmental issues and express yourself? Uh, I really believe in the power of humanities in the environmental field. Like three years ago, everyone was, you know, talking about how social science is super important in environmental work. And I feel like that's happening a lot. So many people are employing the social sciences in designing their community engagement. And right now I feel like the new frontier, which is actually not new, there are people who have been employing the arts in their in their practice for a very long time, but the mainstream environmental movement, I feel, has not fully embraced it. So for me, at least, I really like to bring in the arts into my work. I like to do this through urban sketching. I remember when I used to live along Lake Michigan. I used to go and sketch the Lake Michigan shoreline whenever I would get frustrated with work or when I was reviewing like a grant application that was super complicated and my head was exploding. I would just go out to the beach and like sketch the shoreline, sketch how people are interacting with the shoreline. And uh, I really enjoy telling stories about people's relationship with the water through watercolors. And honestly, it's sort of like a very meta phenomenon, right? Like watercolors really acts like the water itself. It's, it's whimsical, it's fluid, it's dynamic, and yet it can produce something really beautiful. So watercolor sketching is one of my favorite ways to um, document my relationship with the environment. And then I also really enjoy more of these embodied forms of being in relationship with nature. I feel like it's very easy to intellectualize a lot of this work and make it super cognitive. But in order to truly embrace change, you need to feel it in your body. And so I really, I have been exploring climate themes in the context of movement and dance. And recently, I think around November, I participated in a DC-based initiative where a group of us were really interested in climate issues. We wrote poems and then created, um, I wouldn't even call it a dance. We created movements to embody the themes of our climate poems, and then we performed it back to the community. And that is so rejuvenating and so healing. And in many ways, I would say that's even more impactful than like, you know, getting a grant and writing a project and doing the work. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, really good stuff. I especially love that what you, how you explained, you know, watercolor, right? You're actually doing art with water involved and so that art is gonna mm -hmm. it acts a little bit like water itself um, that's a that's a really cool uh cool way to explain it vidya thank you for sharing your story with us both professional and personal uh very inspiring and uh look forward to following your work yeah love to stay engaged thank you so much for doing this this was fun thanks for coming on video Thank you for listening to this podcast, a collaboration between Waterloop and WaterHub, featuring experts from the Color of Water directory. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.